unapologetically, Easter is a big deal. Can I get an amen? amen? It's a big deal. This is not something that we're just hyping up. This is not just a random excuse to party, although sometimes random excuses to party can be amazing. Easter really is the biggest kind of big deal on the planet because in Easter, God steps into the worst kind of big deal that human beings share in common. Easter's a really big deal because in Easter, not in mythology, but as a witnessed fact in history, God himself went towards human beings to set them free from the two things that oppress every single one of us, the two things that barring an intervention from God, and that's a big statement I just made, meaning it's not something that we can work out on our own. It's not something that we can collaborate together to find freedom from. Barring an intervention from God, the two greatest enemies of humanity will get the last word on you. So in the fullness of time, God unwilling to let those enemies win, move towards humanity through his son, Jesus, to set us free from chains and bondage that we could not unlock even if we had a million tries to take those chains off. So today, what I want to do is briefly, I want to talk about the two great enemies. Now, there are problems and there are problems. There are problems and there are problems. Everybody in this room knows that it's difficult to be a human being. You felt that today trying to find parking in Midtown. Some of you felt that today and having a bad hair day on Easter of all days, right? Don't look at your neighbor. They'll feel like you're judging them. Right? Some of you had the wonderful spousal conflict on the way to church. Right? Thank you, honey, for helping me prepare my soul <laughs> to lean towards spiritual health. I appreciate that. Right? There are problems, man. There are little difficulties. There's taxes. There's jobs. There's all the challenges of being single, the challenges of being married. And, and all those are real problems and real challenges. But listen, man, the two great problems that we're facing are problems we normally don't even talk about. Right? The biggest problems that we're facing you today are not problems of unemployment. They're not even problems. They're not even problems that are just about relationships that are messed up in your life. The two biggest problems are so huge. They're so overwhelming. They're so terrifying that with one of these problems, every time it whispers to you, I guarantee you, you like the rest of people in America, do everything you can to distract yourself from that problem. Right? We play existential whack-a-mole when this problem raises its head. Right, this first problem pops up and we're like, what do we do? I don't know. Netflix. And, and that distracted approach to dealing with this problem, it can keep you from feeling the sadness of it. But nonetheless, this problem, barring an intervention from God, is going to get the last word. Second problem, the second problem is so countercultural that it's hard to even talk about. The second problem is so against the grain of the culture that we're swimming in that we don't even really believe that this problem exists. So let me name the problems and let's talk about the intervention of God. Problem one is the tyrant known as death. The tyrant known as death. And I understand that this is Easter morning and we're gonna celebrate and have fun with our families. I know that you guys broke out your best pastels. I too am wearing a floral shirt. <laughs> but you actually, you actually are going to miss the point of Easter if you're not willing to talk with sobriety about death. You're going to miss the point. Because the reality is death, is, death is the great threat to all human beings that lays waste to everything that we built. Death, in the words of 
the teacher of Ecclesiastes, death brings us all to the dust, both man and beast. In the words of the psalmist in the 82nd Psalm, verse six and seven, the psalmist says, I say, you are gods, sons of the most high, all of you. Nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince. Now, if you think about those words, that's a recipe for existential angst. Human beings are the weirdest creatures because we're these creatures that have a lot in common with animals. We've got these bodies that get sick. We've got these bodies that get old. I'm having shoulder surgery on Thursday. Getting old is lame. We've got these bodies that fight against us. And we've got these bodies, listen, we've got these bodies that are gonna turn back into the dust from which they came. And yet, we have these spirits, we have these souls that want eternity. Eternity is planted in our hearts, man. We don't want death to get the last word. We want love to last. We want beauty to last. We want our relationships to last. In fact, it feels in some real ways that if death is the last word, there's a futility. It's almost like we're just playing games at loving and living and working. This tyrant death spreads to all people. It's the great common problem of humanity, right? Like no amount of education is gonna get this problem off your back. You can make all the money in the world. You can fill your bank accounts. You can Scrooge McDuck backstroke through mountains of gold and you're still gonna die, right? You can be super healthy. You can, you can free base wheatgrass and suck down tofu if you so choose, and you're still gonna die. Yoga's not gonna stop it, not even goat yoga, which is the thing I've heard, <laughs> right? Like, listen, let's just sit in this reality. Whoever you are, wherever you came from, the common end of all human beings is that you will breathe the last breath. And if that's the last word on what it means to be human, that's a problem. That's a problem. That's a problem. And different cultures have tried to address that problem in all kinds of ways. In our culture, we address that problem by staying busy, by just not looking at it, by not talking about it. We're a culture that sees more pretend death on television and on our computers than any culture in the history of the world. And we encounter less real death than any culture in the world. So we kind of pretend that it's not really real. It's kind of fiction. It's kind of an adventure until you get sick or you put somebody that you love in the ground and then that problem gets really loud, doesn't it? A psychologist did a series of interviews and this one excerpt from her work in this book called The Worm at the Core on the Role of Death in Life is really telling. This is about a five-year-old kid named Richard. Listen to this. He swam up and down in his bath and he played with the possibility of never dying. I don't want to be dead ever. I don't want to die. And after his mother told five-year-old Richard that he wouldn't die for a long time, the boy smiled and said, that's all right, I've been worried, and now I can be happy. Then he said he would like to dream about going shopping and buying things. <laughs> Let's just stop for a second. Is that not our primary strategy in dealing with death? It's stuff, it's experiences, it's comfort. And yet, listen, there is an end date. There's an expiration date on these bodies that we're walking around the world in. And if death is the last word, life is actually a tragedy. 
Because, man, I've been married to my wife for, uh, it'll be 21 years this summer. And either she's going to put me in the ground first, or I'm going to put her in the ground first. But there's something about sharing this communion that I have with her that demands more. There's something about our longing for beauty that just demands more. Death is a problem. Death is a problem. But the second problem is the problem that actually created death. That actually created death. See, you can think that death is just a part of the natural world, and in one sense it is, but death has an origin. You were made to live forever. You were made to be immortal. That's why your soul longs for immortality. And yet this second problem created death. And listen, this second problem makes it impossible to just hope that we'll cease to exist after death. The second problem makes it impossible to hope without any basis in fact for some kind of benevolent afterlife. The second problem is the one that we don't want to talk about as postmoderns. It's the problem sin. It's the problem sin. For some of you, even that word, you have a visceral reaction. You go back to sort of fundy churches that you were raised in where sin was just a list of external behaviors that was used to beat people up. I get that. But in our moment, where we sort of collectively believe that sin is just this construct used to design, designed to like take freedom, take authenticity, take joy and flourishing away from people. We got to sit in the sober reality that sin is actually way different than that. Right? Sin is not something that a group of angry church ladies came up with to beat people up over taboo offenses. Sin at its heart is actually living in an, in, in an incongruent way with ultimate reality. Sin is actually, it's actually being created to live with God. And instead of living with God and honoring God and loving God and seeing God as our highest treasure, sin is the default mode of our hearts that wants to take all of God's stuff, that wants to take all the things that he's given us, that wants to take relationships that are designed for our good and food that's designed for our good and treasures that are designed for our good. Sin is this thing that we do where we elevate those created things above creator in a way that's nothing less than treason. And that sin, that sin is not just external, meaning like you can be a really religious person and still be as in the grip of sin as a really irreligious person. Like you can go to church every week, you can do good deeds, you can sort of live a moral life, and you're still, in the, in the core of your being, you're still without an intervention gonna be a human being that wants God's stuff and not God, that wants to live in pride. Romans tells us in chapter one that sin is suppressing the truth about God, the truth about God. It's not seeing God as he is. It also tells us that sin is not glorifying or thanking God. It tells us that sin is exchanging the glory of God for images that aren't God. It's exchanging the truth about God for a lie. It's standing in awe and worship and delight before creation instead of creator. And the problem with sin, listen, is twofold. The first problem with sin is that it eats our souls away like a cancer from the inside. And sin means that there's this moment upon death, and this is what causes death to sting. There's a moment upon death where we're gonna have to stand before our creator 
who created us for his glory, that loves us, that's given us all these gifts. We're going to stand before him in a moment of naked sobriety, and we're going to have to give an account to him for all the ways that we've tried to live as if he was dead. That's a scary thing. That's a scary thing. Like, that's a holy thing. That's a terrifying thing. That's a weighty thing. And so these two problems, the problem of sin, the problem of death, these are not problems that one or two of us face. Like, these are the human problems. This is the warm at the core of our existence. And what happens as we celebrate resurrection, what happens is we're invited to see the intervention of God. We're invited to see the intervention of God because Easter Sunday is nothing less than a remembrance of a historical moment in which God broke into the story of humanity. God was unwilling to let us live a life where sin and death would get the last word. God was unwilling to give us what we deserve. He was unwilling to wash his hands of us. He was unwilling to leave us in our alienation and despair, and in love and in mercy, he moved towards us in Jesus. And this resurrection that we celebrate is a reminder, and I need you to hear me say this. Midwestern Bible Belt folks that have had a lot of religion and not a lot of gospel, I need you to hear me say this. Easter is a reminder that Christianity at its heart is not a religious system where you get to God. It's not. If you think that, you're not a Christian. Christianity is not just another world philosophy. It's not just a collection of teachings from a good prophet. At the heart of Christianity is a historical event in which the man Jesus Christ, who is the Son of God, died and rose to defeat sin and death. And the core of our faith is putting all of our hope in that, our trust in that, because of three beautiful things. All right, three beautiful things. Let me give them to you. One, The resurrection is powerful. And I wish I had a word more powerful than powerful to communicate that. The resurrection is powerful. The resurrection is the glory and splendor and strength of God making himself weak and fragile and breakable so that he could bear our sin and bear our shame and taste fully of the cup of death that we deserved. And it's the reminder that on the third day, God flexed his muscle. The same God that created everything out of nothing raised Jesus from the dead, not as a ghost, not as a spirit, but as an embodied man with a glorified body. That God did this miracle in such a way that it's not just mythology, it's something that happened. 500 people at one time saw Jesus. As the early gospels were being circulated, as the New Testament epistles were being sent from church to church, there were people that were alive and were eyewitnesses of the resurrection. It was so powerful. It was so amazing that it took people that were terrified of persecution and empowered them to go and lay down their lives for the power of Jesus. Now, people might be tempted to tell a lie that benefits them. But if the resurrection was a lie, why would the early church and why would the disciples of Jesus be willing to be sawn in two and hung upside down because of their refusal to recount that they had seen Jesus? 
The resurrection is the power of God on display. See, here's what happens on the cross. Jesus bore our sin and shame. And in the resurrection, he was vindicated and exalted. On the cross, Jesus bore our punishment. In the resurrection, he offers us his life, his resurrection life, his death to sin. On the cross, Jesus drank every drop of judgment that we deserve. And in the resurrection, he clothes us by grace through faith in him with his righteousness. On the cross, Jesus died, stopped breathing, didn't swoon, didn't pass out. He was killed by professional executioners. He was wrapped in over 70 pounds of burial linens. He was laid in a tomb for three days. He died. And on the third day, Jesus rose from the dead, defeating the great tyrant death with his resurrection. Easter is powerful because it's God's intervention in the human story. It's God's refusal to let sin and death get the last word. Easter is the power of God on display. But that power, listen, is personal. It's not just general. It's not just it's not just collaborative. It's not just communal. It is all those things. But the resurrection of Jesus is deeply personal. It's personal on two levels. It's personal, one, because it's a personal Jesus that was raised from the dead. Jesus is alive, which means being a Christian is not just checking all the right boxes for good doctrine. There is doctrine that makes up the Christian faith. But Christianity is not just believing doctrines. Christianity is not just attending church. Christianity is nothing less than being joined to the living Jesus, where his resurrection life and his atoning death become yours. People say it all the time to the point of it sounding really trite, but Christianity really is a relationship with Jesus. And it's a relationship where the full storehouse of all of his power and all of his love and all the Father's affection for Jesus gets opened up and it all gets counted as yours in that relationship. So becoming a Christian is not like, it's not like um, being a Civil War fanatic that studies the Civil, Civil War and does reenactments and pours over the words of Abraham Lincoln because Lincoln died and didn't bodily rise from the dead. Jesus is alive. To be a Christian is to know him, to be led by him, to be formed by him, to be trained by him, to be covered by him, to be blessed by him. Jesus is alive and in this room. And it's also personal, listen, because that great intervention of God in history is not just God intervening in the capital S story of humankind. It's God intervening in a bunch of lowercase s stories of real people. And you see this in the people that Jesus showed up and appeared to after he came back from the dead. Anybody know the first person that Jesus appeared to after the resurrection? A lady named Mary Magdalene. And I'll try to not get emotional, but in their culture, if you were a woman, you were so marginalized, you couldn't even bear witness in a court of law. And Mary was not just a woman that had been marginalized. She was likely in her life before meeting Jesus, a prostitute that was pushed to the edges of everything in her culture. And Jesus rescued her. And the Bible says that he cast seven demons out of her. And after Jesus was killed, Mary's whole life is over. 
Jesus was everything to her. He was the one man that actually saw her with dignity. He was the one who was her rabbi, her teacher. She had walked with him and seen his miracles, and then he died, and her whole life was turned upside down and devastated. So Jesus appears to Mary, and listen, he makes her the first witness of the resurrection. There was a guy named Peter that Jesus appeared to. And you might think, well, of course he appeared to Peter. Peter was an apostle. He was really important. Listen, Jesus appeared to Peter after Peter had denied him three times. Peter was sitting in shame. Peter went back to fishing, thinking his time with Jesus was done. And Jesus comes back from the dead and pursues Peter, who had denied his faith three times. There was a guy named Thomas. What's Thomas's nickname? Downing Thomas. And we use that term and we think, oh man, Doubting Thomas. That's what defines Thomas. It's not what defines Thomas. What defines Thomas is that Jesus upon the resurrection moved towards the doubter who said, I will never believe unless I see the holes in his hands. Jesus held out his hands. He didn't poke Thomas in the chest and shame him. He said, hey, Thomas, there they are. There was a terrorist who was killing Christians and throwing them in jail who hated Jesus. After the resurrection, Jesus appeared to that terrorist named Saul, transformed his life from the inside out, made him an apostle in the early church named Paul. We could go on and on and on. The point is, the resurrection of Jesus is not just powerful in a general sense, it's powerful in a personal sense. And listen, Jesus is here today to intervene in your story. He's here to meet with doubters and skeptics. He's here to meet with addicts. He's here to meet with people who have bad marriages. He's here to meet with people who feel like their faith is holding on by a thread. He's here to meet with people that have walked away from the faith to invite them back. He's here to meet with cynics. He's here to love skeptics. The resurrection of Jesus is powerful and it's personal. And he wants his resurrection to be the defining reality of your life. That in his resurrection, you can know love and acceptance and freedom and forgiveness. And that you can know that death doesn't get the last word. And the last thought, which is important, I have to mention it, because if the resurrection is just personal, that means that at best, Easter is just a pagan cycle of death and rebirth, right? And here's what I mean. Like in the pagan world, rites of spring are always about this big circle, this unending circle of death and decay, followed by new life and rebirth. And it always happens again and again and again. It's a never-ending wheel. But that's not what Easter is. Easter is God's exclamation point in history that history is not a wheel. History is a timeline that's moving towards the recreation and redemption of this very planet on which we walk. Jesus is the first fruits of those born from the dead. And the Bible tells us that all of creation is groaning. And if you just walk out of these doors and pay attention, if if you don't allow yourself to be trapped and only going to beautiful places with beautiful people, if you look at the world as it is, you can hear it groaning. You can hear the world under the toil of death and decay and injustice and sin and all the evil we do. You can hear it groaning. 
And Jesus is God's answer to that groan because the resurrection of Jesus is a down payment on the resurrection of all things. There will be a new heavens. There will be a new earth. Every tear will be wiped away. You will not spend eternity in a Simpsons-like heaven playing a boring harp and floating on clouds. The resurrection is God's guarantee that in Jesus, there will be a new heavens and a new earth that will be as God intended it, only better because of grace.